Our passage this morning comes from Romans 3. If you'll turn to Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 3 this morning, as Mackenzie just read. And as we come to this passage this morning, we come to really a, a huge turning point, a major turning point in this letter. And so if you've been with us over the last few weeks, then you know that we've been in this bigger section of Romans that start, started in chapter 1, verse 18, and that extended all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And if you remember that, that big section wasn't really the, the feel-good section of Romans that made us all feel really good about ourselves and built up our self-esteem. Instead, the section that we've been looking at over, over the last few weeks was all about how unrighteous we are. That all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, are just a bunch of unrighteous sinners who stand condemned under, under the judgment of God and under God's wrath. And if you remember last week, Paul kind of summarized all this up in, in, this, in these concluding words that we read in chapter 3, really starting in verse 10 uh, through verse 18. If you, if you remember there, he said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Not even one. Receive. The venom of feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Like that, that'll, again, build your self-esteem and make you feel really, really good about how awesome <laughs> you, you are. But the reality is this, is, this is who all of humanity is. This is the condition and state that we all, apart from Christ, all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, all of us, find ourselves. We're all unrighteous sinners who stand condemned under the judgment of God and under the wrath of God. And because of that then, Think about this question. If that's true, then what is the greatest need for all of humanity? Like if, if this is true, the section we've seen over the last few weeks, 118 to 320, in describing the condition of mankind and, and the state in which all of humanity finds themselves, then what is the greatest need for all of humanity? Like our, our greatest need isn't financial like to get out of the debt that you're under this morning. Like your, your greatest need isn't relational, like to find more friends or to, to find a spouse. Greatest need isn't emotional, to find a way to be happy. Your greatest need isn't psychological, to try and figure out a way to not be anxious anymore, not to be lonely anymore, to not to be depressed anymore. Instead, hear this, the greatest need for all of humanity is righteousness. That the greatest need for all of humanity is righteousness. It's to figure out a way, to find a way, to somehow, in some way, to be counted as righteous by God. 
It's to figure out somehow in some way to be able to be declared righteous by God. It's to be able to secure a righteous verdict from God where he looks at you and he doesn't say condemned, guilty. Instead, he looks at you and he says innocent, not guilty, righteous. Like nothing in the, in the rest of the world matters compared to this. Like you can be financially set, you can be relationally secure, you can be emotionally content, you can be psychologically stable, you can be physically fit. But if you're not righteous before God, you're eternally doomed. And so then this is what this passage that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 3, 21 through through verse 31, it's all about. It's all about how unrighteous sinners like you and me can be declared and counted as righteous in the sight of God. And so that again, these last two and a half chapters that we've been looking at over the last few weeks have been all about, all we've read about, right, week after week after week, is how unrighteous all of humanity is. Unrighteous Jews, unrighteous Gentiles. And how, because we're unrighteous, we stand under the condemnation, the judgment of God. But then, this morning, we come to verse 21, and seemingly out of nowhere, we read these first two words. Look there with me. But now. There's probably no more important word in the entirely English language than the word but. B-U-T. For the kids out there. Because what the word but does is it cancels out everything that has been said before them. And so, you come to somebody and you say, hey, your, your son was in a car wreck. Ah! But he's fine. But you're guilty. You're unrighteous. You're under condemnation. You're unrighteous. You're under God's wrath. Over and over and over again. Two and a half chapters. But now which should then fill us with this sort of anticipation and hope. You mean in light of all that we've seen of who we are? You mean, but now, but there's, there's hope? And he says, but now, a righteousness of God has been manifested. So two and a half chapters, you're unrighteous, you're unrighteous, you're unrighteous, you're unrighteous, but now. A righteousness. We should perk our ears up. A righteousness. Yeah, we need a righteousness. A righteousness of God has been manifested. And you're like, hey, that's what I desperately need. I need to be counted as righteous. I need to be declared as righteous. I need a righteousness. And so then starting in verse 21, through the rest of the chapter, what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain what this righteousness of God is, and where it can be found. And so that's what we're going to see in in the rest of this passage this morning. We're going to see, this is going to be a long list, but we're going to see seven different truths that Paul is going to explain and give to us about this righteousness of God that we desperately need, and that we desperately need in order to be counted as righteous and declared as righteous before Him. Then after we look at these seven different truths, what we're going to do then is we're going to look at the question What's, what's the practical implications of this for our lives then? Like these seven different truths about this righteousness of God that we desperately need in order to be declared righteous and not guilty before God, if those are true, then what are the practical implications that these truths then should have on our lives individually, but also on our lives corporately and particularly how we relate with one another within the church? And so then the first truth about this righteousness of God that we need is, is this. It's that this righteousness, and you see all this on your hand out there, is apart from the law. It's apart from the law. This is what he says at the very beginning of verse 21 there. Look there with me. Paul says this. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Meaning this righteousness that we desperately need, it's not obtained or received by doing works of the law. So it's not, a, it's not a works righteousness. 
You don't attain this righteousness. You don't earn this righteousness by doing things. Instead, this righteousness comes to us apart from works of the law and by doing things to earn it and by working for it and by ultimately deserving it. So that's the first truth he tells us. It's, it's a righteousness that's apart from the law. Second truth then that he tells us is that this righteousness was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. So what we see, look at the rest of verse 21. He says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The it here being the righteousness of, of God. What that means is that this righteousness that has been manifested, it's not God's plan B. It's not like, okay, things got fouled up. Let me figure out a way to fix this. This is option B. Instead, this righteousness of God that's been manifested, it was testified of, it was promised going all the way back to the Old Testament Scriptures. And that's what that, those words there, that phrase, the law and the prophets is a reference to. When those things are used together, it's always a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. And so what he's saying is that the entire Old Testament points forward to it, testifies of this righteousness that has now been manifested. Third truth then that we see here about this righteousness, it's that this righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is huge here. This is what we see in the very next verse in verse 22. Look there with me. He says, the right in Jesus to this law. Instead, here in verse 22, he says it's received through faith in Jesus. This is huge here. I talked about this a, a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago. But when it comes to this idea of this word faith, like this word faith means a whole lot more than just believe, right? A whole lot of people believe in a whole lot of things. Right? People believe in the Easter Bunny. Sorry to burst anybody's bubble. People believe that the Chiefs are going to win the uh, I was going to say the World Series, but the Chiefs. <laughs> Nobody in this town or this city is going to win the World Series for a long time. Um, I can guarantee you that. But, but people believe the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. But, but the word faith here, it means a whole lot more than just believe. Instead, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, this word faith here means reliance. It, it means to rely upon something. And so then Paul here is saying this righteousness of God that comes through, not, not from the law and doing things and earning it. Instead, this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus. Meaning this righteousness of God, this righteous verdict of God, Him declaring us to be righteous, comes through not relying upon ourselves, but comes through relying upon Jesus. It's come through relying upon, that, relying upon the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is, is able to secure a righteous verdict from God at His judgment bench. Or another way to say it is that our only hope for being declared righteous by God our only hope for, for securing a, a righteous verdict from God at His judgment bench, our only hope for those things is Jesus. And so then, we're not relying on ourselves and all the good works we've done or all the religious deeds we've done or all the religious activities we've done or our ethnicity or our race or our gender or our social class to render us a righteous verdict from God. Instead, the only thing that we're relying upon and trusting in and placing our faith in for that righteous verdict is Jesus. He's our only hope of God declaring us righteous before Him at His judgment bench. Which then leads to the fourth truth we see here about this righteousness. It's that this righteousness, see this on your hand up, is for all who believe. It's the next truth Paul mentions there. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now here it comes. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, just this, these, these blessings or these truths about this righteousness, they just get even better, right? Like this righteousness, it's available to anyone. Think about that. This righteousness, it's available to everyone. Because he says, God, God makes no distinctions. 
God didn't care who you are. God didn't care if you're a Jew. God doesn't care if you're a Gentile. God doesn't care if you're black. God doesn't care if you're white. God doesn't care if you're male or female or rich or poor or young or old or, or anything else. He says this righteousness of God, it's available to, to everyone. It's available to everyone. And the reason for that, again, is because God makes no distinctions. When He looks at all of humanity, He doesn't see color. He doesn't see ethnicity. He doesn't see gender. He doesn't see social class. He doesn't see your bank account. He doesn't see any of those things. He makes no distinctions. The only requirement, though, in order to receive and obtain this righteousness, it's not based upon any of these other way to obtain the for being able to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And that's what he's getting at. Look at verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All Jews, Gentiles, blacks, whites, young, old, rich, poor, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then everyone is in desperate need of God's righteousness. And everyone is in desperate need to be declared righteous in the sight of God at God's judgment bench. He shows no distinction. His righteousness, therefore, is available to all because all have sinned and need it. Which then leads to the fifth truth we see about this righteousness, which is this. You see it on your handout. This righteousness involves being justified by God. It involves being justified by God. That's the next point Paul makes there. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, and are justified. The word justified here, it's a legal courtroom term that simply means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. And so this, this word here, justified, in verse 24, it's the verb form. Sorry, we're about to get into a little English grammar. Uh, this won't hurt. Uh, but we're going back to like fourth grade real quick. But this word justified, it's, it's the verb form of the noun righteousness that we saw in verses 21 and 22. And so those words are referring to or mean the same thing. But this is really important to understand when it comes to this word justified. That word justified or justify does not mean to make righteous. Everybody with me? That word justified doesn't mean that God makes us righteous. It means that God declares us to be righteous. Like, like a verdict that a judge would, would render at, at court. In this way then, what, what Paul's saying here is that, that being justified by God, it doesn't change our nature. Instead, we're, we're still sinners. We still sin. So it doesn't change, being justified doesn't change our nature Instead, it changes our status. Meaning, even though we're still sinners who continues to sin, God declares us to be righteous and innocent and not guilty and free from all charges in His sight. Justification, then, is a declaration. It's a verdict. It's a change of status, not a change of nature, of who we are. All that, then, begs this question. How in the world is God able to do that? Everybody with me? Like, like, what gives God the right to do that? Like, I thought he was a just judge. So how in the world can God just come on the scene and just pronounce a bunch of guilty sinners to be innocent and free from all charges and righteous in a sight when they're not? Like if a human judge did that, we'd be furious. We'd be irate. We'd be, you want to talk about protest, we'd be protesting. Get that judge off the bench. He's unjust. He's declared a guilty person to be innocent. He's not fit to be a judge. Now I know most of us don't lose sleep at night when it comes to that question regarding God and His justice. But as John Stott, a 
preacher, theologian, British theologian from back in the day once said, like, forgiveness and justification for God is the profoundest of all problems for God. So, so how can he do that? Compromise his just dilemma that God finds himself in. Paul's going to answer that question for us in just a minute. Okay? Not, not immediately. He's going to answer that question for us in just a minute. But before he does, he, he's going he's to show us a sixth truth about this righteousness of God and, and God's declaration of sinners to be, to be innocent and righteous in his sight that he wants us to see before he answers this question of how God can do all that without compromising his justice. So we're going to answer that here in just a second. But before he does that, here's the sixth truth he wants us to know about this righteousness. And you see it on your hand out there. It's that this righteousness is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. This is what we say. Look at the rest of verse 24 with me real quick. Paul says, and are justified, here it comes, by his grace as a gift. So that again, this verdict of righteousness that God issues to us through faith in Christ is not something that we have to earn. It's not something that we have to work for. Instead, it's something that God, just think about this. It's something that God freely gives to us as a gift by his grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. You just, you just receive it as a gift that you don't deserve by His grace. And that's just mind-blowing. And the reason it's mind-blowing is because that is completely opposite of the way everything else in this world works. Like everything else you do in this life you have to earn it. You have to work for it. You have to deserve it. Like if a football player goes out to, to try and win a game, it's just not given to them as a gift. They got to earn it. They got to work for it. You want to make an A in your class? It's not just given to you as a gift. You got to earn it. You got to work for it. You want that job that you're applying for? It's just not given to you as a gift. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. Relation, I mean, just go on down the line. Everything in this life you have to earn and work for and deserve, except for the declaration of, of righteousness by God and the righteous verdict from God. That's like literally just about the only thing in this life that is given as a gift with no strings attached by His grace. Which then brings us back to God's dilemma, right? And that question that I asked earlier. Again, how can God do all this without compromising his justice? How can he do all this and still maintain his justice? How can he declare guilty sinners to be innocent and still be a just judge? Well, the answer to that question is found in the seventh and final truth that we see here, see here regarding God's righteousness. And that seventh truth is this. See this on your handout. It's that this righteousness is accomplished through the redemption and propitiation in Jesus. So I know, like those are two really big theological words, right? And the second one is like a tongue twister and hard to, hard to say, propitiation. I'm, anyway, there's some funny jokes that could be said at this point, but I'm not going to embarrass anybody in this room um, or myself. But what Paul's going to um, do here in the rest of verse 24 and 25 is he's going to explain how God is able to justify guilty sinners without compromising his justice. And here's how he's able to do it. Look at verse 24. He says, again, and are justified by his grace as a gift. And now here's how he's able to do that without compromising his justice. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be. In verse 25, we'll do that. You see this on your hand out there. On Jesus in condemning. God upheld his justice by pouring out his wrath on Jesus and condemning him in our place. That right there is how God is able to uphold his justice and still declare guilty sinners to be innocent. 
And that's what, that's what Paul's getting at if you look at verse 25 when he uses this word here, propitiation. Now again, I know we don't use that word a lot, propitiation, in our normal everyday conversation. Like I don't tell Hannah, Hannah, go get a propitiation for me. Uh, that, that's not normal everyday language in our household. So because of that, then what in the world is a propitiation? Well, this word propitiation refers to something that satisfies or appeases the wrath or the anger of an offending party. It satisfies or appeases the wrath of someone that you've offended. So one way to think about it is this. In Paul's day, in the pagan world back then, there was a God for everything. So there was a weather God, there was a storm God, there was a God for your crops, there was a fertility God, there was, a, there was literally a God that covered everything. And so then if you ticked off or made one of these gods angry, then, then they would, you would feel their wrath. And so they would unleash their wrath upon you. And they would do that by doing things like destroying your crops, keeping you from having children, and they would pour out their anger and pour out their wrath. They would, they would withhold rain and cause a famine. And that they would pour out their wrath and pour out their anger against you in and, and all these different ways if you've offended them. And so then the way then that you would appease or satisfy the wrath or the anger of, the, of this God that you've offended is that you would go out and grab a chicken or your, a bull or a goat and sacrifice, sacrifice it to the God that you've offended in order to appease or satisfy the wrath of, the, of that God. And so that sacrifice, that chicken, that bull, that goat then, was a propitiation. It was what it was required to satisfy or appease the wrath of that particular God that was offended. And so then that, that's the picture then that Paul is using here when he mentions propitiation. But there's a huge difference. Because when it comes to God, though, there's a difference between how his wrath and justice is satisfied and how all these other gods' wrath and justice are satisfied. That God's wrath isn't satisfied by something we offer to him. Instead, God's wrath is satisfied by himself. God's wrath is, you catch that? God's wrath is satisfied by him, himself. In other words, it's satisfied by him putting forward Jesus as a propitiation to appease and satisfy his wrath against us for our sins against him. And that's exactly what happened on the cross, that on the cross, God poured out the full fury of his wrath on Jesus, the innocent one, for, for all the sins that you and I have and will ever commit. That the innocent was declared guilty and was condemned by God to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners like you and me who have sinned against Him. And in doing so, well, we'll get to that in just a minute. Look at, look at the rest of verse 25 then. Paul emphasizes that even more and more in the rest of verse 25 and, and, and 26 here. Look there with me. He says, this, which is a reference to what he just talked about, to, to God putting forward Jesus as a propitiation of God's righteousness from how Paul uses it in verse 5 and then also in verse 26 that we're going to see in just a minute, is a reference specifically to God's justice. That God putting forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sins, was to show God's justice. Then look what he says in the rest of verse 25. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, meaning again, his justice, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me put all this together for you. You, you see what Paul's saying here? He's referring here, specifically at the end of verse 25 and then end of verse 26, how in the Old Testament that God passed over the sins of those in the Old Testament. 
In other words, in the Old Testament, yeah, there were sacrifices that were made. There was the Day of Atonement. But none of those fully and finally and ultimately paid the penalty for the people's sins. All of that then just really just deferred the punishment and the payment for those sins until a later date. So then in this way, God literally did just pass over the sins of those in the Old Testament without finally and fully punishing them and judging their sins. Which again, presented a big problem for God. That it it put His justice on trial. Is God really just if He just simply passes over the sins of Abraham, the sins of Moses, the sins of David, and just, oh, I'll forgive you. You're innocent. You're righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. When in fact, they're really guilty sinners. It's a huge dilemma for God. But here's the point. This is one of if not the major reason for why Jesus died. And it's one of the, if not the, major reason for why God poured out His wrath on Jesus. And this is really huge to grasp. And this is really a a really God-centered rather than man-centered sort of way to look at the cross. In other words, when Jesus died, and you can see this on your hand out there, Jesus didn't simply die for you. Jesus didn't simply die for me. To save you. To rescue you. That's not the ultimate reason for why Jesus died. Jesus didn't simply die for you. Jesus died for God. Jesus died to vindicate God. Jesus died to uphold the justice of God. Jesus died so that God wouldn't compromise His justice and so that God's justice could be vindicated and so God could display and demonstrate that even though He passed over sin, He's a just judge in upholding His justice by condemning Jesus for those sins. That's why in the very end of verse 26, we read these words. And these words might be the most beautiful words in the entire book of of Romans, but we read these words. He says, so that he might be just, talking about God, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Meaning again, this is why God poured out his wrath. He did it for two reasons, that he's compromised his justice. That's reason number one. The second reason, though, was so that he could be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Meaning not just the justifier of the Jews, not just the justifier of the Gentiles, not just the justifier of any other social group that's out there, but the justifier of the one, of the anyone who has faith in Jesus. And so that he could declare them to be righteous and without guilt before him, without distinction irregardless of who they are. It's in this way then that the cross displays not only the justice of God in punishing sin, but it also displays the grace of God in justifying sinners without distinction, irregardless of of who they are. And so then, that's a lot. But here's here's the thing I want us to see. If, If all that's true, if this is how unrighteous sinners like you and me are counted as righteous in God's sight, then practically speaking, what difference should it make in our lives? Or another way to ask this question is this. If God is both the just, is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, without distinction, irregardless of their ethnicity, race, gender, social class, then what are the practical, practical implications of that on our lives, and in particular, on our relationships with one another 
in this church. Well, I want to conclude here with, with two implications. If you have a handout and you look at your handout, you're like, oh, there's three implications. Well, I ditched the last one, okay? Kind of calling an audible at the end. So there's two implications. You can cross out that third one for those of you who are that sort of person. Um, I won't mention names or look at anybody. Um, but the first implication is, is this, and of all that we've seen is, is this. It's to trust in Jesus. Stay with me. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you think you're a Christian, but the reality is you're, you're relying upon something else to secure that righteous verdict from God for you, you're relying upon being a member of this church, you're relying upon about your baptism, you're relying upon religious deeds and activities that you're doing, you're relying upon your effort. Like deep down, if that's really, if, if you were pressed, you would acknowledge, that's really what I'm trusting in. That's really what I'm relying upon. That's, that's what I'm really placing my hope in to be declared righteous by God then the way that you need to respond this morning is to utterly renounce all of those things and to see all of those things as complete rubbish and to see all of those things and their inability in order to secure for you a righteous verdict from God. Those things can't do it. The only thing that can do it is, is Jesus. He, he's the only one that can, can do it. And everything inside of you is going gonna, is gonna to be screaming, that's not true. You gotta work for it, you gotta earn it, you gotta deserve it, you gotta do it, you gotta do it yourself. You gotta rely upon yourself. But the reality of everything that we've seen is that that's not true. And so the only one that you need to rely upon is the, is the death of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and substituting himself on your behalf, satisfying the wrath of God against you for your sins so that God can declare you righteous by faith and as an act of grace in, in your heart and in your, in your life. That's, that's number one. So if, that, if that's you this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're relying upon something, that's, that's the implication for you. Everything I'm else about to say doesn't apply to you. That's the implication for you. Rely upon, trust in, place your faith in Jesus for your, for your righteousness. Second, think about this. It's a humble this passage is here. It's not just simply be nice theology to fill our brains with a better understanding of propitiation and redemption and justification so that we can just sling these words around in theological conversations with people so people think we're smart. Like these words are used, these truths are used to, to humble us. Like if there's nothing we can do to earn that righteous verdict, if there's nothing we can do to deserve it, if it's a free gift, that's just given to us by grace through faith in Christ, like without distinction, irregardless of who you are. If that's true, then look at the question that Paul asked in verse 27. Then, in light of all that, if that's true, what becomes of our boasting? And here's his answer. It is excluded Meaning it's shut out, it's cast away, it's, it's gone, it's shut up. And then he asked this question, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified, meaning no Jew, no Gentile, by faith apart from works, that no one, we hold that one is justified. Excuse me, meaning, meaning, not just a Jew or not just a Gentile, by faith apart from works of the law. Almost committed heresy there. I'm sorry. That right there, right, is the effect that this justification by faith message is to have on our lives. Think about it this way. If God justified us and declared us righteous based on works of the law, then we'd have reason to boast. We'd have reason to puff our chest out because we earned it, we worked for it, we, we, we deserved it. But if God justifies us and declares us to be righteous simply by faith and by relying upon what Jesus did for us, then we have absolutely nothing to boast about. 
We have absolutely nothing to be proud of. We have absolutely no reason to feel like we're better than or superior to anybody else in this room or better than or superior to anybody else in this world because we didn't do anything to earn our justification. Instead, our justification was just given to us freely as a gift by grace. We simply just received it and are relying upon it. It'd be kind of like an eight-month-old child who who is trying to get across this dangerous patch of whatever in the mountains. You can tell I don't go in the mountains very often, right? And that child is like, I'm scared. I can't get across this, this danger by myself. Like I'll fall, I'll trip, and eight months old, probably not saying all that out loud, right? But the dad or or the mom picks up this eight-month-old and this child is clinging to their parent with all of their might, relying upon their parent with all of their might to make it from point A to point B. And once the mom or the dad gets across that dangerous section of the mountain and lets the child down, the child doesn't get across on the other side and start boasting about how amazing they were and patting themselves on the back, puffing their chest out. Wow, did you see me? I got across there. Look at me. Yeah, I did it. The child didn't do anything. The parent did it all. The child was just clinging to that parent, relying upon that parent with all of their might. The same thing is true for us when it comes to our salvation and our declaration of righteousness and Jesus. Because God, the God of Jews, so, since God is within overthrow the law by the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, that, there's a lot there, but here's, here's what he's saying. Let me summarize it for us real quick. What Paul's saying here is that God isn't the God of just the Jews only. And God isn't the God of just the Gentiles only. Instead, God is the God of both groups. Instead, and and, and because of that, because he's the God of both groups, then the way he justifies both groups is the same. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. Because of that then, neither ethnic group is superior to or better than the other. And therefore, neither has any room to boast against the other or feel like they're better or superior to the other. Neither group has any grounds for boasting or for pride. And the reality of that, put all this together, we're about about to apply this. The reality of that then should cause these Jewish Gentile, should cause these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians in the church at Rome that Paul is writing to, to quit boasting and feeling like they're superior to and better than one another. And here's the application it should have the same effect in our lives and in our relationships together as well. And here's the thing. I don't want to beat a dead horse because it's about to seem like I am. But sometimes a dead horse needs to be beaten a little more in order to make sure it's dead. And I apologize if that offended any horse lovers out there. But here's what I mean. Pride, arrogance, feelings of superiority. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. It's prevalent all all over the place. Especially in light of, of all that's going on in our, I'm about to beat a dead horse in our country today. And all the disagreements and all the different views and all the different opinions that we have about all of these things. And even all the different views and different opinions about all these things that we have within our church. That if we're not careful, we can allow these different views and different opinions to begin to fill us with pride and to begin to fill us with arrogance and in such a way that we begin to feel like we're better than and superior to one another. And as a result then, that that can fuel then a critical spirit 
and a condescending attitude toward one another, and it can cause us to be really angry and harsh and frustrated with one another, and it can cause us to even begin to shy away and avoid one another and not really seek to love one another and understand one another and serve one another and care for one another. Instead, it can cause us to isolate from one another and just huddle up into little groups in which people agree with us. And it just breaks my heart. For me, like, to get on social media, like on Twitter yesterday, please don't anybody let me do this ever again. Okay, please. And to just read Christians literally annihilating each other. Just killing each other. Just a bloodshed of words. Godly men that I've read their books, I've been helped by, who disagree on some of these issues, and in a public format, literally crucifying and killing each other. Not to try and, not, I'm not talking about healthy debate. I'm not talking about sharing opinions and disagreement and learning from each other and hearing from each other. Pride at rip. Brothers in Christ differing on this issue that ultimately in the big scheme of things doesn't really matter. And I'm reading that, I'm like, I don't want our church to get there. And we're not there, okay? So don't, what's going on here? We're not there. But I don't want us to get there. And part of that is why we're going through Romans. We're not going through this book so we can better understand theology. Yes. We're going through this book so this theology can humble us in our relationship to the Lord, and in particular, more, not more importantly, but in this cultural moment more importantly, in our relationships with one another. And so please hear this. As, as one of your pastors, my biggest concern right now isn't your view on mask, and it's not your view about racial issues, and it's not your view on politics. Instead, my biggest concern right now is your heart. It's the attitude of your heart and and how you're holding to the views that you're holding on all of these things. And so don't don't misunderstand me or don't get me wrong because I know people hear that and you're like, well, he's telling us it doesn't matter what you believe. Like, it doesn't matter what you believe anymore. Just believe what you want to believe. I'm not saying that. Like, there are some views and opinions that are outside what what the Bible teaches. And so people can go far to the right and go way beyond what the Bible teaches. There's a line there. People can go far to the left and go beyond what the Bible teaches. And there's a line there. So there are lines. But within those lines, there's all these different views and there's all these different opinions that we can disagree over and not see everything eye to eye on. But it's not these extreme views that I'm really scared about too much when it comes to the life of our church. And if you go beyond those lines in these extreme views, we'll deal with it. We'll talk about it. We'll address it. We'll have lunch. And talk through those things. So it's just not fair game. Believe whatever you want to believe. The same time, when we talk about in between these lines and all these other different views, what I'm most concerned about isn't all these different views and differing views that everybody holds in between these lines. I'm really more concerned just about the heart posture in which everybody's holding to the views and the opinions that they have and how that causes you and influences them and impacts how you relate to one another within our church who differ with you. In other words, please hear this, because I mean it. The biggest war that's being raged right now isn't in our culture. The biggest war that's, and that's important, okay? So don't, yes, that's important. The biggest war that's being raged right now is the war that's being waged in your heart. And I firmly believe 
for most Christians in this cultural moment, we've completely lost sight of that. And it makes me cry and weep. The biggest war right now is the war against pride and arrogance and feelings of superiority that is happening in your heart. That's the biggest threat and that's the biggest battle that you really need to be concerned about right now. And that not, not, all, this, not all this other stuff that is important. But here's the key. The way then that we wage war and battle against this pride and arrogance and feeling superiority in our hearts is everything that we've seen this morning. It's by remembering that our political views or your opinion to be to say, look, remembering that we're all just a bunch of unrighteous sinners who've been justified and declared to be righteous by God. Not because we're intelligent or smart or wise or have this correct view on mask or race, racial issues or, or politics. Instead, we've all, as unrighteous sinners, have been declared righteous by God freely as a gift by his grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And therefore, we have no reason to boast or to be proud or to feel like we're superior to or better than anybody in this room this morning. And the reality of that then should cause us or keep us from dividing up into little tribes and little social groups based simply around the views that each other have the reality of this ought to allow us to have healthy discussion and healthy debate regarding the issues that we differ on. And it should allow us to accept one another and to press into each other's lives, even if we don't see eye to eye on all of these things. The gospel puts everybody on the same level, and it, it causes all of us to walk with a limp and to live in humility in our relationships together. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together in your word. I know it was long, longer than normal, but just thank you for your word for us and pray that you would continue to do a mighty work in our lives through it. Lord, that we would be a people who are strong in our theology, but not simply for the sake of theology and knowing good doctrine, but I pray that the reality of this theology would be able to work itself down into our hearts that would cause us to live lives of humility that don't boast and don't feel like we're superior to anybody else. Um, but, then, but because of that, Lord, that we would live lives that are just astounded and in awe and humbled by your grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.